Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Nicole Clark, co-founder and CEO of Trellis, a research platform for litigators that's making the law accessible so everyone can make the right decisions, whether you want to see how specific legal issues are decided across counties and states, understand how judges have ruled on similar motions, or gain strategic insights into your opposing counsel. Trellis is strategic research for smart practitioners. In this episode, we go through how this company got started, how Nicole decided to turn this from a tool she was using individually into an actual business, how she ended up building the product itself, some of the challenges along the way, how she's gone about growing her team, the pricing and business model behind Trellis itself, how they look at branching out into new markets, and so much more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Nicole Clark, co-founder and CEO of Trellis, which you can find at trellis.law. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. And I heard about Trellis a while ago. And for people who don't know what you're doing with this company, tell us a little bit about what Trellis is doing today in 2021. Sure. So basically, uh, currently, uh, every state trial court is separated by county. So there's Los Angeles Superior Court, San Francisco Superior Court. They all host their data separately, maintain it separately. So what Trellis does is really harvest the data from all of the separate state trial courts, make it searchable through a single interface. So really being able to search trial courts across the nation um, from one interface and then also do analytics on judges and litigation at the trial court level as well. There's a ton I want to dig into with this. <laughs> and I know I love the the different data plays that are out there and how making it easier from a data perspective is so beneficial. And there's so many companies, obviously, that are created from that. Yeah. How did you decide to start this in the first place, Nicole? So I was a litigator and it was not something where I, I aspired to be an entrepreneur very early. I always <laughs> sort of thought in business terms, but um, I was practicing and it was just a, a pain point that I encountered over and over again. So one of the first things that that happens when a lawyer gets assigned a case is they'll get an email from someone uh, in their firm or they'll send around an email that asks if anyone at the firm has any um, insight into the judge that you happen to be assigned to. And it just always blew my mind that we were sourcing internal anecdotes to make these super strategic decisions. Um, and so, so that was sort of the, the starting place of why, why isn't legal utilizing data in a practical way to get insights on the judges and the matters that um, were actually uh, appearing before and that we're actually handling right now. Um, the actual impetus, so that was sort of something that, that percolated for a while, the, yeah. the actual first first uh, mining of data happened because I was writing a huge motion and I was complaining to one of my colleagues. It was one of those all-nighters and I just didn't know anything. I, I wasn't, it was a complicated issue. I wasn't sure how to really organize my, my motion to the judge. And my colleague said that he thought he had appeared before my same judge previously. And we went back and we checked his file and he had a ruling that was by my judge on my issue from a few years earlier. And it was like I got handed the answers to the test. 
And so for me, that was really when I recognized that there was data out there that no one had been aggregating and collecting that was just this entirely untapped data source that is incredibly valuable um, that no one really had put the time in to, to really aggregate yet. And so why didn't lawyers have access to that? And um, I, of course, combined with the fact that I happen to have um, some really smart, you know, dev friends <laughs> that said, what do you mean this isn't being done yet? And so together we really started mining Courts that I was appearing in most often, and then um, I used it in practice for for a number of years before really uh, jumping full time into Trellis. You know, I'd heard that from a previous interview, and I was curious about that. So, how did you decide to flip the switch then from you being able to use this tool? It's like your secret weapon of sorts yeah. to then being like, hey, let's make this into a company for for others as well. How did that transition happen? So it was always the idea. The idea was I have this hypothesis that this data is super valuable and I am afraid to jump from practice, right? I, I, <laughs> I want to I make sure and validate the idea before I take my career, you know, entirely off the trajectory that I had thought was my trajectory. Um, and what happened was I really got validated during those years. It became really obvious to me that this data was a massive opportunity and that gave me the courage to jump and go full time. So it was always the intent, but I wanted to, to really test and validate. <laughs> um, and I did it for a number of years and what it was a, it was a twofold for when it was time to jump. One was I had won every motion for two years. <laughs> Um, and the next was we finally had a really meaningful data set. And so the combination meant that it was finally the right time to bring Trellis to other lawyers. I mean, in, in that data set, I mean, you see, you finally had a meaningful data set. I mean, what is roughly the size or like, how did you get to that point? Because I think other companies out there who will be wanting the same thing and also debating, you know, how much should we research and how much should we test this out before we launch? Any, anything around that you could say around, you know, what you had at the time of launch? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be slightly subjective and depend a little bit on the data set and what you're doing. But for for us, think of it as a, a almost a Google of sorts, right? A Google on top of, of state trial court data. So meaningful for us was both a number of cases. So let's say minimum of a million cases searchable. And then also just in me as customer number one, when I'm searching, am I finding the answers? And yeah. if I am finding the answers at my fingertips, then yes, we're ready. And if I'm not, then we need more data because what customers don't want is to waste their time and suddenly <laughs> give up on your product because they tried one time and, and didn't hit something good. Yeah, that's that's the worst. <laughs> and then you kind of lose them forever. You're yeah, like, oh, you got that real one chance at the beginning with someone, you know? <laughs> exactly. From that as well, I know you went through Accelerator, you went through Techstars. Yeah. How did you decide to go through Techstars? So I, having jumped from legal, having absolutely uh, no network in, in venture, having not been an entrepreneur um, and not really having close friends that were, I just didn't know very much. And so I, I wanted to figure out like what was going to be the crash course in sort of um, the overall ideas and notions that I would need to learn to create the business. And then combination also, um, how was I going to get introductions to venture capital when it wasn't a network that I had? And so it was really the combination of I didn't feel ready. I knew there was so much that I didn't know. 
and why, you know, why wouldn't I take advantage of, of, you know, hundreds of people that have built meaningful businesses that have learned so much along the way that could give us some advice and then also debut us to, you know, venture, venture uh, capital at the conclusion of the program and make introductions that would have been much slower, let's say, yeah. um, for me to do on my own. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you end up on uh, Techstars? Obviously, there's a number of different accelerators or incubators out there. How did uh, Techstars come about for you? So it's interesting. We actually applied to Techstars twice. Um, the first one was we were God, we were so early. It's so funny to look back <laughs> on this things, right? It's like you know, you know, you're early, but you don't really know you're early until you look back. At, at yeah. the time. Um, we applied, and that was actually to the Boston Accelerator first. I really, you know, in doing my cursory research and not knowing much, I, I basically saw two incubators. It was Y Combinator and and TechStars, and those were the two I was going to go after. Um, we made it a couple steps into the the Boston program, and then didn't end up making it all the way. And suddenly, you know, we're, we're, I was in Los Angeles, Los Angeles based, and and very new TechStars actually launched the LA cohort. And it was headed up by Anna Barber, who was also um, had a had a background, had gone to Yale Law, and so she she had some some insight both <laughs> into uh, the domain and also. Um, so much about about startups altogether. And so it just seemed like such a meaningful fit for us where we could actually stay in our location, be based. Um, and so I'll tell you, though, in when, when we finally did make it in, into the L.A. cohort, the company was at was at a much stronger stage at that point. We had a lot of momentum. And the truth is I was jumping regardless of whether we made it into Techstars or not. I had already given notice at my firm. And so Techstars happened to fit in really well into the, I just jumped and now we get to go into the accelerator. Um, <laughs> absent that, I, I was jumping anyway and we, we were gonna go out to market. That's a lot to handle. <laughs> Preparing <laughs> to leave your legal career for this startup that you, you know, you had some validation from a few years, but still yeah. take me through your mindset at that time. How are you feeling about that? Um, scared. I, I, I think there that anyone says that, that there's not a lot of fear involved in jumping into a venture um, is maybe not thinking through things all the way. <laughs> um, it, it should be scary. I, I, I think that's a super common and, um, and just sort of an obvious feeling. Um, but there was also, I think from the start of getting the idea for Trellis, there was this almost compulsion is the way I would describe it, where I almost I almost felt like I didn't have a choice. Like the company was so obvious to me that this was going to exist, whether I built it or not, that I, what was I going to do? Continue, uh, you know, my, my litigation <laughs> career when this other thing was just, it was more obvious to me than my litigation career. And so it was just like, you ever, you ever sort of watch yourself and you don't know you've made a decision, but you can tell by the actions you're taking. Mm -hmm. yep. It was almost like I watched myself and I said, okay, so I guess I have just decided to go all in. I haven't like consciously decided that yet, but here I am taking all those steps, giving notice. Clearly I've decided somewhere in there, but um, no, there was, there's no question that it's a, it's a terrifying and exciting um, combination, just sort of a stew of emotions at the same time. And I'll tell you, it doesn't get much different through the ride. <laughs> You have like much different challenges as you continue forward, but all of that stew of fear and excitement that really carries you through, I think, your entire journey. 
Yeah, and it's like that's the first step to be able to take the jump, but that's literally just to take the jump. And then there's fundraising, there's team building, there's customer acquisition, all these things that we're going to get into in a second here that you get to eventually. But the first step is really you know deciding to start. But even before then, you had decided to get the data and get this thing built. Um, yeah. Even before then, obviously, yeah. so you had taken a lot of steps be- before that even. And with Techstars, so going back to the Techstars, sure. I've had interviewed a number of people who have gone through Techstars and definitely rave about it, mostly for, again, that experience of then being able to get the relationship to venture capitalists. You end up raising from Craft Ventures. Mm-hmm. How did that go about? How long was your, your fundraising in the initial uh, first round of capital? So we, we very initially, pre-Techstars, raised friends and family money. Um, and, and that was sort of the, you know, pre-seed to get us going sort of in tech stars. Um, the, the venture capital story w- was an interesting one. So I'd say if I really look back to, um, actively raising, I, I can say sort of from the start of the business all the way through when we closed our seed round, I, I was raising. Um, and I think there's, there's always that sort of ABR always be raising, uh, my <laughs> CEOs as well. Um, but we didn't, we had a ton of intros to investors. I would, I would say that Techstars is not one of the things that I learned. I think I came in from, uh, you know, the, the separate industry and in my mind, okay, you go to a well-known accelerator and bam, stamp of approval, you come out with this, <laughs> right? There is just that, that's, that's the exchange, um, and that's not necessarily the case. So it is important to go in there knowing that they'll get you in front of people, but your job to to close them and get people excited, that remains on the company and is definitely not on Techstars or any other accelerator. Um, we ended up, had sort of some, some uh, team navigation issues throughout Techstars and uh, finally came out, were ready to raise, decided not to raise while we were sort of in the program, but to start at, at Demo Day. Um, and then it ended up being that Kraft came in as uh, not through Techstars, but instead through one of my employees who had worked at the FCC and knew someone who knew someone. So <laughs> it was one of those things where um, I'll call I'll call it and I'll call, and I'll tell you I think this is true of many things in startups. It's really a combination of hustling and luck. And, um, you know, craft in particular, that was luck in happening to have connections that, you know, this one put in a good word for this one that moved us onto this stage. Um, but it, it, the, I wouldn't say that, that we, you know, the round pulled together immediately through Techstars. Techstars prepped me to think about the business, right? Yeah. And it put an additional sort of plus factor on the company for investors, but it wasn't the thing alone that um, really uh, allowed us to get funded. For that as well, then, at, at that time when you're, you're raising that round, I mean, what kind of traction or what did the business look like at that point when you were raising? Obviously, you said you had some friends and family uh, money before that, which I actually want to ask about in a second. But sure. what was the business like at that point when you raised from from Kraft? So at that point... Um, it's still so funny to look at it because if you would ask me at that point, I would have told you about our amazing momentum, right? <laughs> and looking back on it now, again, um, geez, we, we were incredibly early at that point. So at that point, we were uh, less than 10 customers under 10K in MRR, but getting, getting close um, and had a good core of a product working. 
So we had that the the basic, and I mean basic MVP. <laughs> um, and we were able to have um, customers that that were able to validate to the VCs. Yes, we're interested in this. Yes, we know it's not fully baked yet, but we are excited to be along as she continues to build this. And then taking one step back, because I know people people always bring this up, and uh, it's a valid point. Yeah. People gloss over the friends and family round. <laughs> and it's it's it can mean a lot of different things for people, but for those new entrepreneurs who are literally starting from zero and are like, what is this mythical family and friends round? I don't have these family and friends. Like, what did that look like for for you? Just curious. You know, I, I agree with that. I, I often would complain and put myself in that category too of, and, and even obviously I probably had much better opportunities even just knowing, uh, you know, the legal domain, et cetera, and, and folks there. But I would have said, did not grow up with with that type of network and friends and family. Don't have, you know, my uncle I can go and tap. <laughs> yep. um, and so there, there was a lot of, at the early stage of just sort of feeling sorry for myself, like, you know, that doesn't seem fair. Um, what you have to do is open your eyes and think about it as you're not, it's not like you're going to your friends and family and asking for a loan. It's not like you're going, instead, what you're actually doing is you're bringing them this incredible opportunity. And it really did take the sort of mind, uh, mindset, sort of flipping the narrative there for myself to realize that, um, and it was actually after the first time that I pitched, I pitched to, uh, what the, the partner of the firm that I was working at, one of the named partners. And honestly, I, I, I think he might have even passed. But what he said was, thank you for bringing me this opportunity. And that right there sort of switched it for me where I was able to then think about the people that I knew, not in terms of who can I go to that can maybe do me a favor or, um, you know, who, who would support me no matter what. But instead, look at the people that were smart and strategic and pull together other people that I know who who are the networks of my close friends? Who are the networks of my family that we can think about that have the resources to make these kinds of investments and in fact, appreciate the opportunities that get in, that, that come to them? So it's it was a variety of, of cold reach outs, of warm <laughs> reach outs, just asking for intros to other people in their network that they might know that was interested. Um, and really thinking all the way back, it doesn't have to be uh, direct family. We went to childhood uh, friends that had done well for themselves or that were in businesses that we thought might get the, the general value prop. Um, but, but yeah, I definitely understand the uh, pushback on friends and family <laughs> and, and where does it come from? It comes from changing the way you're thinking about your friends and, and family around to, it doesn't have to yeah. be family. It doesn't have to be close friends. It simply has to be folks that you can get in front of in any way possible and just say, Hey, I've, I've got this opportunity. Let me know if you're interested. Yeah. I think that's really helpful to hear that. And it reminds me of uh, whether there was an article, whatever it was around the strength of weak ties and understanding how that can be so beneficial in your yeah. career. Yeah. And then for this, in, in terms of fundraising, like that's the thing right there. It's like thinking beyond like literally who your closest friends and family are. It's like, okay, but who is the connections to them? Exactly. Uh, and then, yeah, going back into your, your Rolodex of sorts to really think about who could it possibly be. And I think that's, it's helpful to hear that. Cause I, I remember reading some of the reviews on stuff and hearing things about like how I built this and people hear about them glossing over the 100,000, 200,000, whatever family and friends around. They're like, well, how did that happen? And it's like important when you're starting from zero. And just to close out the loop then on, on the fundraising, I know it was 
20 so last year uh you raised again from craft how did that differ in terms of raising the uh, additional round of funding that was based on um, a huge growth in the company. So that was actually more of a, a preemptory round um, where we said, look, it, it appears like things are working and yeah. they're working now pretty quickly. So instead of having to take my energy and another six months going out there and bringing in, in capital, um, why don't we pull together around super quickly and keep going? It's sort of the gasoline on the fire scenario because anyone who who uh, has fundraised, who is fundraising, can tell you that it is a massive time suck and distraction yeah. for running the business. Um, so any way that you can uh, avoid spending time and still get um, you know deal that makes sense at all, I, I always recommend getting in and getting out in terms of fundraising as quickly as possible because you just can't focus on the business the way you need to during that time. Yeah, it's a full-time job to fundraise. I oh, mean, sure. it's 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 all you're doing and you're taking so many different meetings and from talking to people on the show thinking about how many hundreds of meetings they've taken and some yeah. people have taken, you know, 10 months before fundraising. It can be a very long process. Um, hopefully it doesn't have to be that long if you can be more strategic about it, but it's definitely- It's true. A, it's true. And you really yeah. do have to get comfortable with, with the nose, especially when you love your baby. And <laughs> you, it's just so obvious to you. Um, I, it's almost funny because I still see it sometimes. I see it in sales calls or something where it's like, if I get a no, it, I almost, I have this urge. It's my, my personal intent. Like I am going to change your mind. And sometimes I have to sit back and say, there's much bigger business issues to focus on right now than this, like one, you know, one sale that is not particularly important, but I, but I sometimes have that urge. And I, and I remember feeling it with fundraising where the no's would just, you know, they really grate on you. Um, yeah. But the truth is you are going to get them. And the faster you can get a no from someone, the faster you can knock them off the list and go to somebody else. And the truth of the you only need one yes is absolutely true. <laughs> With that though, I'm curious, when you're going through that, when you're in yeah. the thick of fundraising, you're getting all these no's, what keeps you going? What helps you just think, not think about it for a second? Like, What is it about it that helps you keep going through that process? You know, it's almost the, at least for me, and I, and I can't speak for everyone, but for me, it's almost sure. the existential threat of it that um, this has to happen or the company doesn't survive. And so there isn't a lot of, you know, it, it's the fear that pushes you through those times of no, 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 and just keep going, keep going, because the alternative to not keeping going is, is you give up and the thing dies. Um, and so you've obviously, you've had enough uh, excitement and pull and momentum to get there in front of people. And and I, I think it's one of the things that really sort of separates uh, an entrepreneur from others is just, you you just keep going. It's, it's the grit of it. You know, no's yeah. happen, they're going to happen, and they're going to happen a lot. Um, <laughs> so get used to it. It'll still be annoying, but you got to get back up and then chat with the next VC and not let it phase you, which is probably the hardest part, right? You come out of like a, a, a difficult VC meeting and then you have to go into the next one as excited, um, <laughs> you know, as confident as you were before getting a, a series of no's. So that part is something that I think you get better at with time. Um, and also with own, your own validation that, okay, well, they don't get it. That's okay. Um, we just need to find someone who does get it. 
Yeah, it's, it's such a challenge, a lot to go through, but obviously helpful at least to know what you're getting into in some ways. I mean, some ways it's not just maybe the the uh, not knowing. I heard the, uh, the saying that it's like, you know, if entrepreneurs actually had any idea, they would never do it in the first place. And I think there is some truth to that. It's funny, if I looked back to my very first decision and said this was going to be the road, you know what? Obviously, I think I still would, but I had no idea. And to, to some extent, now I have an idea of sort of what it takes to get to where we are, but I still don't have an idea of of the road that we've got a, ahead. And if I did, I, you know, I might have less excitement pushing me forward into it. Yeah. And it's just like, you're, you just have those headlamps on. You're like, hey, let's look at whatever's in front of us now, because yeah. you're not going to be able to see the whole road anyways. And it's no one knows, that, right? you know, no one knows what's going to be. And, and taking a step back again. So one of the things that we haven't chatted about yet, but it's everything in terms of startups is the team. How have you gone about building the team? I'm sure it's evolved over time, especially early on when you first were getting started, convincing people to join you. How did you do that? You know, I think it's one of the things that is important about the the CEO. There's a few things that they have to do really, really well. And it's particularly, let's talk about venture-backed startups in particular. You have to be able to uh, bring in money. You have to be the bottom line and you have to build a good team. Um, so very early on, I think I have learned, I've probably learned my most lessons in, in team building um, and, it, and it continues to be, but there is no question that team is as important as your idea, as important as your market. Um, it's really the, the very core that allows you to do everything. So early on, I was looking for other sort of entrepreneurial folks that had different skill sets than I did. So I happened to have a, you know, a close engineering friend at the time and I didn't know any other engineers, believe it or not. That was literally the only uh, dev person that I knew. And so I went with the one person I knew and started to bring in a little bit of team. And, you know, it turns out that that wasn't the right fit. Um, the interesting thing about the journey of building your team is you don't need to get your team perfect from day one. What you need to do is get a team that allows you to get to that next step. And at that next step, you have more validation so you can bring in, a, you know, even more qualified people and then you build for that next step. And so I'm very much of the opinion of you hire for what the business needs right this second. And that does change, which means that um, unless the, the team can grow exponentially uh, individually, which is not always the case, then you're going to have to have some transitions in your team along the way. And that is what's right for the company. So, you know, it's one of those things where you, you do the best you can at the stage you're at to fill the needs you have right then, and then you adapt. And uh, if, if changes need to be made as the company continues to scale, then you make those changes at that point and you continue. But the team that I have now, I am so incredibly proud of. It is why we've been able to accomplish what we have. Um, my co-founder is Alon Schwartz, who was the CTO of a company called Docstock, which sold to Intuit. And it's the combination of us as founders that are able to, we, we really ground each other. So I, I'm like always coming up with the idea of the thing we need to build 10 years from now that we're not ready for yet. <laughs> yep. He reminds me like, <laughs> that, that can't be done this second, but here's what can be done. And it's really finding that person that you can collaborate with that um, 
you're able to build on top of each other, that your skill sets are completely different and completely complementary. And that should be always what you're looking for in your very earliest team. You don't need other people that are good at what you're good at. Um, you're all going to be wearing many hats. So get the folks that can wear the hats that you absolutely can't. And then as the team progresses, um, if you need to transition team members, then you do it at the, at the time that makes sense. As you've grown the team, and you mentioned the, the growth you were getting ready for as well to raise more funding with that. I mean, tactically, what has been helpful in terms of finding key hires, uh, building yeah. the team? Because I mean, there's so many ways to go about this, but I love hearing how different people approach it. I would love to hear how you've approached it as you've grown, especially. Yeah, it's been a combination of different things. So when you get your core folks in, then you've got sort of the backbone of the company. And from there, hopefully some of those people have networks that where they've worked at other startups with other entrepreneurs. And so there's some bit of a network that you already sort of have network effects internally with your own team. So you start there. I would say um, we, we did end up using recruiters for some of our hires, and that's a virtue of being really busy and needing super qualified candidates, but not having the time to source them yourself. Yeah. So I think that's an option if you have the capital to do that. But I by no means think that that having a recruiter is necessary. Um, it, it, it is a timing thing. How much time do you have to devote to bringing the people on? Um, to finding the right people. And then ultimately, even with the recruiter, it's still the CEO's job to convince the person that this is going to be huge. They're going to have a meaningful impact and you're going to have fun doing it. And so know that even when you have the, the recruiter, they're still they're they're interviewing at a ton of companies. And most of the companies, if you're a startup, pay far more than you do, have much better <laughs> Right. So yeah. so your job is to let them know why, you know, you and, and your company is going to be um, more fulfilling, ultimately more fulfilling than taking that job at, at Google or or Snapchat, et cetera. Yeah, that is the advantage. And from the companies I've talked to who've really done a great job with it, they're they're incredibly clear on their mission and how mm -hmm. that separates them from everyone else. Uh, otherwise, yeah, the, the, the pay, pay cut you're taking to join a startup with the potential is, is otherwise not, you know, it could be seen as not worth it. But when you look at the actual mission of the company and where the trajectory of the company is, that gets people excited and people are willing to work there and you can get top talent to be able to join you as well. Which it's is true. Everything. And no one really wants to be a, a cog in the way. I mean, most of the time, unless you've got family situations and you really just want super stability, most people want to know that they're having a meaningful impact on the, the product that you're building um, and the company altogether. And so um, generally ways, if, if you can get really practical about tying that back for the person about this is how what we're building is going to actually uh, push the business forward and that will be a direct effect uh, of you then people that resonates with people. Absolutely. And one of the things I want to talk about now is just with thinking about what you've you've built already, there's a business model behind this, obviously. How have you come up with what that model would look like? I know you have, you know, currently there's like a free trial and different tiers. Yep. Take me through the evolution of that for trials. <laughs> it was an evolution. That is absolutely <laughs> it tends to be. <laughs> um, I can tell you, so I started out and I thought um, there, there's some, some giant legal research companies, your big incumbents out there, uh, Lexus and, and Westlaw. And I thought, okay, Trellis is going to be just like Lexus and Westlaw. And we're going to be B2B enterprise sales directly into law firms. What's the problem? 
And then I hit the sales cycle at large law firms and recognized that even with the capital that we had raised, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to withstand an entire sales cycle to close these large law firms before the company ran out of cash. And so at that point, you need to start adapting and figuring out what are ways that we can that we can change? And so what we did was we did a series of testing. And I, and I tell you, uh, testing is something that we, we focus really heavily on here at Trellis. We're constantly running A-B tests. Um, and that was how we made these decisions, too. So you start sort of with your hypothesis and then you test it and you validate it and you move forward. Once you've got at least some validation, you're still taking a risk, but but that's what you do. So for us, what we started with was making judge biographies publicly searchable. So just creating biographies for trial court judges. Let's say we were starting in California at that point. So California trial court judges and making them searchable on Google so that when attorneys search for their judge, which I know they were doing because that's what I was doing, <laughs> yep. they would hit onto Trellis. And those would end up being sort of uh, different landing pages, if you will. And we ended up getting so much traffic to the judge biography pages, which believe it or not, didn't exist yet. There, there, no one has created biography pages for judges uh, across the nation. <laughs> um, so just these, these little things um, were able to create more of a validation of maybe we have something here in an SEO opportunity, in a freemium opportunity. And with the desperate need to get people into the product and have them, uh, you know, directly decide that this was valuable and not have to have a salesperson going out and making every sale, which just wasn't going to be sustainable at that stage of the company. Um, we decided from the, the judge bios and the success of those that we would really allow Google to, to index a good portion of our data and create a freemium product. So Let's say you can search around and you can see the majority of many pages. And uh, if you want to see the whole thing, that's when you convert to a subscriber. If you want to see analytics, that's when you convert to a subscriber. Um, so the variety of, of sort of uh, upgrades within the, the freemium product that will bring you over into a subscriber which is entirely passive, right? So that allows you to have, a, and this doesn't work for every business. It works for us because we have a massive amount of unique data on yeah. a daily basis. And so Google is able to identify, hey, we like this, we're gonna continue to index that. Um, so it really, it depends on your business. That is what worked for us. We started to see massive growth. Really our growth trajectory took off after we moved to a freemium, um, SEO sort of zero cost of customer acquisition model. With that as well, I mean, as I've, I've, I've talked to people in the similar vein, they're really going the SEO route. How yeah. do you allocate resources towards that? I mean, do you have just a whole content team building judge bios and like, how does that work for you in terms of how you decide to allocate? That's a, that's a phenomenal question. And that goes back to team for me. So my co-founder alone was a, is an SEO rock star. Um, it was very similar to what they did in his previous company with DocStock. Um, and so he had huge depth of knowledge there. That was really um, just an incredible advantage for us. And then the, the uh, other side of that is, yes, we do manually create content. So yes, mm -hmm. we are in-house creating those judge bios. Uh, yes, we are in-house creating motions and issues page. What are the most common motions brought in California and how does that link into our data? So a variety of things that 
constantly help people get from searching on Google into Trellis data. And that's really the way we think about it. it it's twofold. What is What are pages that are going to um, have you know, Google bots be interested in, in indexing and getting further and further into our data? How are we going to get them in? And then similarly, how do we create content that will, you know, you look up your most common searches and you start to create content around those searches that, that lead to your data. But it, there's a huge manual process of it. I, I, I'll be honest with that. The, the evergreen content and the SEO game, it's a difficult game. You've got to constantly yeah. be, you know, generating new, unique content. Um, and I, the way I look at it long term, I, I see SEO as our, uh, let's look at it as the, you know, not in time, it's not super early, but it will continue to bring in the customers. Um, and then at some point, it flips over more that our revenue continues to be generated by our existing users and by, you know, uh, larger companies and bigger deals, which will be more direct sales. But the SEO allows us to get those internal champions and yeah. allows us to build the business early as, you know, generating leads in a way that a, a human sales team just could never do. So it's not the right play for every company, but it has worked for us. Yeah. And when executed you know, correctly, it can be quite the moat as well. When you look at the industry, especially if you created for years and years, this type of content and how long it's been on Google. So in terms of being searched for so long, because it can take months and months for something to rank on Google, depending on what it is. Oh, that's that's a very good point. <laughs> we actually talk about it. And so we don't expect to see any benefits from something that we, we put up very quickly for months. And we call it that it's just sort of baking in the Google oven. So <laughs> we put it in, it's baking, it'll be done, you know, in some number of months. Um, but we look at all of that as potential. Yeah, and it's all an investment in, in the future, especially as you do other channels and other, everything else exactly. grows as, as well from there. And, and one of the things I'm really curious about with this, and I read about the growth and how you started and everything. How do you approach new markets, which markets to get into, how you want to expand on that side of things? Because it's yeah. I'm kind of fascinated by how companies go about that when it's more of a, a, a state-by-state or city-by-city approach. How have you gone about that? So I think there's two questions there. If we're talking about markets in terms of new jurisdictions, then we look at it. There's a there's a variety of data points that we use to prioritize. So one is going to be uh, the number of lawyers in the state, the general legal market. What's the sort of high value litigation that takes place in that state? Um, what's the overall population size? And then fourth would be what are the technological barriers? How difficult is it for us to, to get in there? And then we use that to determine our highest priority uh, next states. So it really is sort of a combination of looking at what are the things that are the most important to knowing that we have a strong market and then knowing that technically it makes sense right now, um, whether it be because it's particularly difficult, so it's a moat, or it's particularly easy, so it's low-hanging fruit, either one of those can be used as a justification sometimes. Um, so that's how we think about rolling out in new markets, um, meaning new sort of jurisdiction markets, so location markets. Yeah. Um, the other would be, well, one final one there would be to the extent we have existing partnerships that are really excited about a certain jurisdiction well, then that's synergy for us to be able to go and um, make sure that we, we have a footprint there because it'll help with our, our existing client relationship. Um, in terms of other markets, so let's go with entirely different verticals. If you're considering, so so right, we're, we're primarily private sector legal, so law firms, lawyers, 
Um, and then general uh, support staff. So everyone supporting um, general litigation, let's say. Yeah. So that's not the only market for our data. There are a variety of other markets because no one has really aggregated this state trial court data, which is the largest court system in the world, <laughs> the state trial court <laughs> system in the United States. And no one has aggregated it yet. That means that by virtue of having that data, we can give insights across industries at some point. So right now, it's an interesting thing because we're starting to test and validate the other markets and say, okay, where are we seeing pull from the market that's not the market that we're serving right now, but that we're seeing pull come in from other places? And then that is something where you, again, start to explore and validate. And I'll tell you, this is something that comes up a lot because I get really excited, right? I get super excited about a new shiny object, <laughs> the thing CEOs do, and we have to get better at. And then the nice thing there is my co-founder comes in and says, okay, well, well, what's the, what's the TAM of that market? Oh, well, I don't know. Well, then why, why you're not ready to talk about it yet, right? So like there's a, there's a pushback of you need to really uh, explore and examine the market. And once you step back from how big is the, how big is the market? What do we see as potential revenue for there? And then step back to um, how do we see our path getting to what we think is the ultimate revenue to be made there and where we are now and what are the steps that we need to take? So it really ends up being a lot more planning than simply jumping in. That being said, there's nothing wrong with testing something to the extent right. that you don't have to build a lot to test it out. Um, that is part of your market research in the first place. Yeah, and oftentimes you can test, I mean, relatively inexpensively and quickly, depending on what the business model is, at least yeah. in terms of gauging initial demand for, for an audience and a market. And then when you're going evaluating the market, I mean, there's so many different things, as you mentioned, that to dip, dive into with that. I'm just thinking about a couple of books I've read recently, one around mental models by uh, Shane Parrish from Farnham Street and looking at things from different different I, I ways. I listen to this podcast often. It's great. Yeah, it's a, it's phenomenal. It's it's one of my favorites. I, I, th I just found it in the last like maybe 10 months or so. And it's it's so good. And yep. just having these men mental models to look at things and it can be applied to to markets, to team, to anything really, just different ways of looking at the world. And I'm also reading this uh, book, Thinking in Bets, um, as okay. well around decision making, which I think is it's interesting to see how everything you look at as a decision is really a bet on something and you're betting on something to happen because of this. And that kind of goes to what you were just saying there around that as well. You're obviously betting that this market will be the next market that will help us grow. And, yep. and it's big enough as well within that. And, and one of the things I'm curious about too is with, you know, you mentioned early on what the product was and the data for it. Take me through today. Like what is the product today? What are some of those things that people love about using this? I'd be curious to say more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned a little bit about what there is apps and trellis. So apps and trellis, if you wanted to look up a court case, you would have to log on. We'll, we'll use Los Angeles as our example because we're here. You'd have to log on to LA Superior Court um, and navigate even finding out where the, the court cases are, which is not easy. And then from there, you have to put in the case number, the docket number, if you were to pull up anything on the case. Now, the silly thing about that is if you know the docket number, you're almost uh, likely to be the attorney on the case, which already has the data. So it's, it's this interesting um, aspect where this is public data. Our, our judicial system, there is no greater right to access than access to our judicial forum. And yet the data is public, but not really accessible. 
And so the way that, that we like to think about it is we're, we're creating this data that the, the public has a right into our judicial forum and certainly attorneys need to be able to see this information. How can we make it extremely accessible to be able to find the insights that you need? So instead of searching by your, by your case number, what if you could search by your opposing counsel? What if you could search by your judge or your legal issue? Or how about your, your judge and the way they rule on a particular legal issue or your opposing counsel and whether they've ever appeared before your judge before and how that case went. So there is so much information and insight that is available at the trial court level that has been just an entire black box up till now with really <laughs> no ability to get inside except for an individual case where you knew the docket number. And so we're turning the tables on all of that and saying, imagine you could search the trial courts by anything. Imagine if you wanted to look up all of Best Buy's litigation, if you wanted to look up all of an insurance company's, you know, bad faith fraud, and even as an individual consumer, see what some of these cases look like. Um, what would that be like? And that's really what we've changed and turned the tables to the, the uh, expectation that this data is available and it is accessible. And now opening up the idea that you can actually get into it and find the insights that you need. And so as, as a very basic level, when we started out with Trellis, uh, we were California only and we were only tentative rulings. Now, really quick, a quick lesson on a tentative ruling. <laughs> uh, basically, the judge, when he's before he rules on the motion, he's giving you the why for why he's granting or denying your motion. That was a thing that gets released only the day before your hearing that no one aggregated or collected. The only thing that ended up going onto the public record was simply granted or denied, and you lost <laughs> all that judicial thought data. So that's where we started. We started with this basically proprietary data set of judicial tentative rulings in California. We've since expanded to dockets. Dockets, think of it as your high-level overview of a case, your entire timeline of events. We've since expanded to the underlying filed documents and cases. So much gold to be gleaned in there. Um, but so mapping out all of the, the, so what did your opposing counsel file on this particular motion? How have they written this motion before? How can you prep to, to you know, write an, uh, an opposition before they've even filed theirs? Because you know what they're going to do. And then judicial analytics on top of it. So one of the, one of the things we, we recently did is we released our new judge analytics dashboard. And this has been a huge effort for the company because at every court level, this data is messy, unstructured. No court does it the same way. They, you know, everyone has a different, there's not even integrated case numbering system. Jeez. I mean, the, the level of fragmentation at our court system is insane. And so what we have to do in order to do really good judge analytics is actually we had to do this massive data classification effort in order to even create the, the machine learning algorithms to be able to continue to learn and, and do better classifications. We really had to go in and almost manually classify just docket entry by docket entry in order to do the analytics that we do. And now, uh, in addition to telling how judges rule on very specific motions, we tell you how many cases they have pending, what their case break time break, breakdown is of everything that they're hearing, how long it takes before them, how long it takes to get to trial. 
How do each case type uh, end up getting disposed of? So there's so much information that we have finally been able to accomplish by doing this huge classification effort. We're now in California, New York, Florida, Texas, uh, Nevada. We're launching uh, Pennsylvania very shortly. Uh, Illinois, Cook County, I'm probably forgetting a few, but we are (laughs) rapidly um, growing across the nation with the intent to be entirely nationwide to, you know, when you think about the trial court system period, you think of trellis, whether you want to look up a case, whether you want to look up an attorney, um, whether you want to look up a judge, all of that information at the at the state trial court level, you think about trellis for. With all this, and you mentioned it being so fragmented, I mean, are there any other companies that are trying to do this? I mean, what what what's the the landscape look like? Uh, I'm curious about that because it, it seems obviously like a, a daunting task to even try to. Yeah get into this space, but what are you seeing from that? I'm curious about that. Yeah. So it's all, that's also an interesting question because the landscape has changed dramatically, I'd say even in the last year. So when I was first thinking about the market for Trellis pre-jumping, you know, a couple of years ago at this point, um, there was nothing, there was nothing servicing the state trial court market. Um, As we, you know, it's one of those things where probably great ideas uh, come to a few people at the same time, (laughs) or um, just generally the technology and the data is finally at a place where this can be done, where it never could have before in the first place. So there are one or two other companies in the space, and we're talking nationwide still, um, that there is still a very, very small market. The interesting thing, and this is something for entrepreneurs to know too about competition, is competition isn't a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It's good because if you go in and you're trying to raise capital and nobody else is doing what you're doing, that's a pretty bad sign that (laughs) it's not a great idea or it's not possible. Um, That's not always the case, but but VCs do look for for pattern matching and they want to know that a market is validated. And if there's zero competition, then it might not mean that that your idea is as as great as you think it is, or at least that's their perception. So competition actually, as it's started to pop up, is only market validation for us, Um, including even the big incumbents starting to enter the space now, which is interesting and you'd think would absolutely strike fear in us. It doesn't. What it tells me is we are on the right track. This data is valuable. This service is valuable. The big guys know it too. The difference is we can build 100x faster than they can. Um, So I'm always more wary of fast-moving agile startups than I am of the big incumbents in the space that just can't, you know, swerve and move as fast (laughs) as you can. Yeah, there are advantages to having a startup, and that is definitely the one is is speed for sure against other companies, and and from that, so taking a little bit a bit of a setback from that, I'm curious as to for you then with with that in mind and with the idea that you you never thought you were going to necessarily be an entrepreneur, you didn't at least aspire to be an entrepreneur. How do you structure your day now that you're running the show? How, how, how does that look like for you? What is what does that your day look like? 
Oh, it depends on the day. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a funny thing you mentioned that I actually just had a discussion about that I need to get back to time blocking um, and, and really creating just blocks of time where, you know, this is when I respond to emails and this is when I'm doing presentations. And um, because your day can get away from you so quickly as a CEO. And I, I find myself being a slave to email much more than I should yes. be. It's not yes. the right use of my time. <laughs> And so even I need to continue to come up with a better system of that. I think I, I wax and wane between it becoming an issue and I'm noticing it's an issue for me again. So the, the best recommendation that I've had and when I do it best, what works for me is blocking out my day and saying, you know, during these three hours, all I'm doing is, you know, strategic meetings on X and I am not jumping to respond to any email that comes in. I'm leaving that for this time period in my mm. day. Um, but generally my day involves always, we, we start with, with morning standup and, uh, there's likely been a fair amount of work before that, but start with morning standup, <laughs> hear from the team, what everyone is working on today, just to keep communication open. So we all know what's going on also to, to have people, it's not necessarily to be held accountable, but we're all able to focus on what's the important thing for the day. Um, and then my day ends up being huge amount of meetings. So it's also meeting overload. Uh, we mentioned Zoom overload when we when we started out. <laughs> all it, you know that happens a lot. So cutting down meetings that you don't need to be in that your team is capable to handle without you is an important thing. And then generally blocking off. You know, I I always start out with a weekly list of the things that absolutely have to be done this week. And then prioritizing those and knocking them out in that order, along with whatever presentations and meetings I have that day or that week, so that at the at the end of the week, I'm able to go back, look at everything, realize what didn't get done, and be accountable to myself for, I said this was important, why didn't I get it done? What's my blocker here? And I find that that works really well for me. It, it's going to be a, an individual thing. I know some people don't like to do this. Some people, so yeah. it's a, it really depends on the person. But for me, um, there's there's it sort of breaks down into meetings, planning and strategy, and uh, sales, and then hopefully not email sporadically throughout all of that day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, email! Yeah, that's that's you, you, as you go older and older, I feel like you just become professional emailers. I mean, that's what we do now yeah. all the time. And I think for meetings too, I know uh, from Cal Newport's book, uh, Deep Work, he mentions there's a switching cost between tasks always. So it is helpful to block off time whenever you yeah. can with that. And I actually find with meetings, I'm trying to do more and more of the scheduled meetings are like 25 minutes long. And so I can walk and then have five minutes to kind of recap the notes in my phone oh, as I'm walking. Nice. And then had the next meeting. Uh, so I did that a couple of times, which I find to be pretty useful, at least in terms of some meetings that you need to be able to take notes or be uh, actually on video. But to have a phone calls is so helpful sometimes for exercise well, and everything as well. Thing, talking about the Zoom overload too. So I used to, I'm a, I'm a phone pacer, right? I used, I used <laughs> to talk to VCs and I would just be pacing around while I'm talking. So I get excited and I get amped up. And with Zoom now, you can't do that anymore. So I've suddenly had to sort of readjust the way that I think during meetings. But you're reminding me, you know, I need to create, I need to go back to phone calls where I can just get some walking in. I'm also just missing out on all the great walking and pacing I used to do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge pacer as well. So I would definitely be pacing whenever possible on calls anyway. So I'm like, let me just give you, give me a second. I'll go outside and just walk and yeah. get the energy out. And I know we're almost out of time here. So Nicole, where can people go to learn more about Trellis and connect with you as well? 
Absolutely. So you can find Trellis at trellis.law. Um, and then you can also find us on Twitter and LinkedIn, Trellis underscore law. And you can find me on Twitter at Nicole underscore A underscore Clark. If you have any specific questions, um, always, always with a, with a specific ask in there is something I recommend, but feel free to reach out to me directly. Nicole at trellis.law. Always happy to help. Perfect. I'll be sure to link that up in the show notes as well. Just go grind.com slash podcast. Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Such a pleasure, Justin. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.